Let's say you're a three-year-old girl who loves playing Donkey Kong, but you don't want to play as Mario. You want to play as somebody that looks like you. Mike, Micah's daughter, a three-year-old daughter, had just this issue. Since she was a little girl, we used to always play Donkey Kong. Um, I'd put her up on my lap, and I have a Donkey Kong arcade cabinet in the house. Oh, wow. And so we'd sit there and play and play, and she started to play on her own. And in the last three weeks, she's actually been getting really good at the game. And um, we sat down to play Donkey Kong again, which is her favorite game. She then just innocently just asked me, can I play as the girl, the girl that she saw at the top? And I'm like, uh, no, in this version, you can't do that. And... Um, she, this is the first time I've actually seen her disappointed. I've told her before, like, you can't, you know, shoot fireballs when you don't have this or whatever. But um, this time she's like, why can't I play that? And it was just kind of like, she was definitely bummed out by it. And it just kind of stuck in my head. And then uh, Friday night, when I first sat down to kind of really give it a shot, it, it just kind of took off. And by morning, I had a full-on replacement of the character for my daughter. And so uh, the way Donkey Kong works is is Mario makes his way up and tries to save its Pauline, right, as the girl every That's time? That's right, his first crush. So is she now, uh, she's playing as Pauline, and so she's trying to save Mario? That's right. So now she's saving Mario, and that was, that was kind of her request. She ended it with, I want to save Mario, so it's like, all right, we're going to save Mario. This, this strikes me like, this is like magic. Like, you, she requested something that doesn't exist anywhere else, and you were able to do it. it it's, I think this is one of those moments where you know, your kids will ask you a lot of crazy things, or they want to go to the moon, or they want to do whatever. There's no way you're going to be able to you know, satisfy those questions. But this time, since I do this for a living, I'm like, I, I should be able to do this one. So it was, it was, <laughs> it was, it was fun for me at the end of the day. It was almost like, for me, it's like building the bike before Christmas morning for your kid, right? Right. So it wasn't like too horrible for me, but some people have asked, like, oh, this sounds really hard. It's, it's kind of like painting over another painting or like what that woman did on that church with the Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but Mike, isn't there a risk now that you've set a precedent? Like that they're going to ask you or your daughter will ask you for more things that will be even more difficult to achieve. What are you going to oh, do? I know. It's, it's, my wife said the same thing. She's like, don't, don't go too far because now you're going to be doing a lot. You're going to be staying up a lot. <laughs> well, Mike, what are you going to do if your daughter wants a pony? Uh, that, that's a little bit harder for me to do and justify. Um, <laughs> it's easier for me to move some pixels around. <laughs> it's bad enough in our house with all the video games I've been able to slam in there. I'm hold- my marriage is holding on a thread because of how much game stuff I have in the house. Yeah, you don't have to clean up after Pauline in the way Not you would. Not at all. <laughs> Well, congratulations, Mike. That's a fantastic thing you just did for your daughter. Thanks for telling us about it. Well, thank you for having me. This is How to Do Everything. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. On today's show, we'll teach you how to draw. And we'll tell you how to identify chicken McNuggets in the wild. But first, last week, a judge struck down Mayor Mike Bloomberg's proposed soda ban. Now, you remember this was it was going to ban all drinks, uh, sugary drinks, 16 ounces and larger. So to commemorate this occasion, we've uh, created the sugariest drink in the world. It's called the Bloomberg. We're going to we're going to make it right now. Okay, so here are the ingredients. We're going to uh, start with uh, one a little squirt of Coca-Cola. Okay. We'll add one part Yoohoo chocolate drink. Yeah, some Starbucks vanilla frappuccino. I got a Red Bull here. I'll say we're, we're coming up on uh, they, things were looking green at the beginning and we're now getting towards more of a uh, kind of a mossier uh, it's almost camouflage. Okay, now we add uh, some Nutella. 
one part of a Cadbury cream egg, just the uh, middle part. You know, it's, it seems like I was hoping we could crack this on the side like an egg and just draw it. This doesn't seem to be working. It just mushed. Yeah. Right. I got uh, some sugar here to make sure this is sweet enough. And here's some yellow sugar, or otherwise known as country time lemonade mix. Yellow sugar. I realize it's taking kind of a long time to, to do this. Yeah. Let's uh, speed things up and just trust us. We are fast forwarding over eight or ten really disgusting sugary ingredients right now. Here's um, some marshmallow fluff, Mountain Dew Kickstart, which is their new energy drink, which makes Mountain Dew worse. And here's um, this is called Pillsbury Funfetti Cake Frosting. It's kind of a neon blue cake frosting. Yeah. <laughs> And then I think, uh, in case we want to, I think in case we want to work out after this, we should add in just a little sport of Gatorade. Yeah, just to get us some shit, yeah, for our mods. We also added a twist of, uh, big red gum. Now we're going to stir it up. Now, the important thing here, if you're making this at home, and God, I hope you're not, the, uh, you want to, uh, serve this in a glass with a sugar rim and, and garnish with a marshmallow peep. Or if you have it, a sugar glass. <laughs> a glass yeah. made out of sugar. Yeah, that's a good idea. All right, so... Everything is now mixed. This and is gross. Poured this is really gross. Into a glass. We're gonna bring in. What our color is this? Do you think? It's. It was kind of like aquamarine. No. And now it's just like olive. Gross. Yeah. It's like it's like cloudy olive. Yeah. It's like a sweet tapenade we've made. Okay, we're bringing in our tester. It's our old friend uh, Peter Sagel. He drinks every gross thing that we make. So Peter, what do you think? I think no. I think I'm not. No. What do you think it tastes like? I think it tastes like like the end of everything. I think it tastes like like the worst thing that could ever happen to a person. Do you have a cold or are you just, is your voice just that sad? I'm, de I'm just deeply depressed by the very sight of it. Well, don't look at it. Drink it. <laughs> Even worse than I imagined. That is really bad. What's going on inside your mouth right now? Right now, uh, every, everything in my mouth are, are trying to flee. It's like a great panic. That is really bad. What's the dominant taste, like of all the things it's that are in there? It's so sweet, my eyes are bulging out of their sockets right now. The pressure in my head from the sweetness is just insane. All right, also, also here with us, uh, Eva. Uh, Eva, you want to take a sip? Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's bad. <laughs> if what you just heard sounded at all appetizing to you, what the hell's wrong with you? Yeah. But we will post the recipe on our website, howtodoeverything.org. Right, we heard from Hillary, and Hillary tells us she listens to our podcast while shelving books in the government document section of uh, her school library at Portland State. She says this is on the quiet floor. Hillary, these next 15 seconds are for you. Mike Danforth, inch leg. You guys are geniuses. You know how to do like everything. You're the best guys in the world. Mike uh, this is good. This is good. I thought we might choose... Uh, something from Peter Frampton's uh, Shelvin Books album, but this is also good. Like, when I shelve, I think about arm strength. Yeah. And this is a song that I'm like, I'm pumping my fist, mm -hmm. you know? With a book. Yeah, yeah. Raise the in roof. The and raise the, the books up to the tall, high shelves. The library. You got good interviews with good experts. Hey, Elizabeth, what can we help you with? I, um, I babysit for a lot of kids, and a lot of times I'll draw with them. 
and we have fun. They ask me to draw different things, and then the mom has come home before, and she's like, oh, honey, did you draw this? And I'm like, no, that was me. <laughs> oh. So you're, the, the, the drugs you made with the kids, she thinks the kids did. Yeah, like I'm a four-year-old. <laughs> Wait, now you you can tell though. Are you pretty? Are, are they equivalent of four-year-old drawings? Are you that bad? Well, I mean, they when I draw people, it looks like a four-year-old did it. Uh, but I mean, I can draw a house. I can draw a pretty good house. This might be hard to do on the radio, but when you draw a person, do you draw a circle and then draw sticks out from that person to represent arms and legs? No, no, I, I've never done that. Okay. But Well describe describe it. Describe describe for well, us the person that you draw. Yeah, it's like I draw the head first, which kinda looks like an egg. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then stick some hair on it, put a face <laughs> on, kinda like draw a little C for the nose and stuff. Okay. And then a lot of times I draw people with their hands behind their backs because if I draw hands they look like Mickey Mouse gloves. Oh, yeah, sure. Which is not how hands are supposed to look. So really, the mom comes home, and what she sees then is a drawing that she would be proud to have her four-year-old draw. Yeah, yeah. She's like, oh, she's so good. So really, everyone is disappointed in that situation. You feel bad because you're a terrible drawer. The mom feels bad because their kid is a bad drawer. And then the four-year-old feels bad, too, because their drawing is getting passed over in favor of this other one that you drew. Yeah, Hmm. yeah. Yeah, we need the help. Yeah. I, yeah. This needs a lot of help. Well, this is fun. I we're we're gonna try and find somebody who can help you out and um Thank you. Hopefully we'll improve your life, the lives of the parents of the children you're babysitting and the lives of the children and the people who may see your work in museums in the future. Oh, why well, thank you so much. Okay. I think we have somebody who can help Elizabeth out. It's Chris Ware. Yeah, do you? I don't know if you've ever read uh, Jimmy Corrigan, the smartest kid on earth. It's his graphic novel. It's amazing. Yeah, and his new book, Building Stories, was one of the ten best books according to the New York Times of 2012. So there. Uh, we're gonna head over to Chris's house here in Chicago. You'll know we're there when we start speaking in hushed tones. So, Chris, do you got any tips for Elizabeth? Well, it, it depends on what one's uh, aims are, and I mean, it's, it's, if you're trying to entertain a four-year-old, you're probably best off to try to relax those internal uh, sphincters that kind of start to close off when when you start to pass through adolescence. It's like a point in everyone's life where self-consciousness constricts a sort of naturalness that we all feel most commonly around four to ten years old or so. Um, I think the best thing to do is simply just to, I mean, this is kind of, you hear this in art school a lot, but you're you're told to keep a sketchbook. There's really no better way to do it. And the most important thing is to draw from life every single day for a certain amount of time. And you'll find when you do that, that you get into a mental state that's completely different than the mental state that you're in uh, during regular adult time, i.e. talking to other people, getting on the train, just navigating the world in general. Um, you'll see things a lot more carefully and you'll find that your mind is a little more finely attuned, but that only lasts for maybe 30 to 45 minutes or so, and then it wears off. So it's, it's good to, to draw every day to keep that sense of awareness. Growing up, I remember kids would draw in their notebooks. They would draw like band logos. What did you draw when you were that age? 
uh, band logos. I think really? yeah, superheroes, that sort of uh, pop cultural imagery, just sort of a recycled kind of regurgitation of the sweetened cereal of culture that was gurgling around in our minds at that point. I really think we're probably the most poisoned generation of Americans probably. And it's, I think kids these days maybe aren't quite as bad. Maybe, well, maybe with video games. I, it's strange though, because with video games, they actually are looking at drawings more than we ever were because video games really are imaginary images. So I don't yeah. know what that's going to do to consciousness, but I, you know, I tried to draw from life a bit, and then I went into the, you know, the zone of trying to meet girls, which is the band logo zone. You, you know, you think you're, that's going to make you appear cool, but it doesn't. It does the exact opposite thing. It's really, it's like a warning sign. You might as well raise a red flag and say, "Don't come near me." What what logos were you drawing? I, you know, to this day, I just would be too embarrassed to tell you. It would still be horrifying and well we'll just assume acdc no it actually wasn't acdc and you're not going to trick me into telling you what it really was by saying that but it was actually more embarrassing than that so Slayer. i'm not going to tell you so you have a daughter and i imagine you have babysitters have you ever encountered a situation like the one elizabeth was in where the babysitter and the kid were drawing and then the parent came home and saw the drawing I, no, I haven't, actually. We don't really, I don't have many babysitters. We haven't had a babysitter in years, so, um, but I, no. Um, you never go out? Not usually, no. I kind of, I like staying home. I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the reasons one becomes a cartoonist is because one likes to stay home, so, but uh, I'll draw with my, with my daughter. We, t- we go down to the Art Institute every Saturday afternoon for the Saturday art classes, and we draw on the, on the train together, Um and I've, I've kind of suggested things here and there, but it, she hates it whenever I suggest even the slightest thing. Oh, if you draw a nose, you could, and it's, I can't even get my sentence done before she's, <laughs> at, you know, don't tell me how to do that, you know, so, which is fair. I can totally I understand that, which is good, because it would almost be worse if she was, you know, taking in everything yeah. I might say. I don't want her to draw like me anyway. The worst of all possible, her teachers sent, pictures to all the parents uh, in, in her class of the kids holding up uh, signs uh, on the signs they'd written what they wanted to be when they grew up. And my daughter was holding the word cartoonist. And I thought, oh my God, no, what can I do to prevent this from happening? So, so I imagine uh, Elizabeth, you know, she'll take the advice to sketch every day, keep a sketch pad with her. I wonder if you might have a specific assignment for her that would get her, I don't know, to do something she might not naturally do. I mean, anybody can draw. It is not a, a talent. It, you can be more talented or more predisposed towards drawing, but every single person could draw. A hundred years ago, every single person was expected to draw if you were in a certain social class. It was something that you absolutely had to do. It was a sign of refinement, especially for women. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's something that anybody can learn. So it's, it's kind of a forgotten art in a way, which is too bad because it's, uh, it's very important. It adds to life in a way, and then it adds to an appreciation of, of experience that is not really there anymore. So, Is that where the, the term, the drawing room, comes from? Oh, that's actually a good question. Huh. I wish I was smart enough to say, oh, yes, of course that is, um, but I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I'm just reading Jane Eyre right now, and there's a part in it where the main character... Uh, shows her portfolio to... All right, you know what we can do? We can actually just fade down this interview with Chris for a second and go ask Jesse Scheidlauer at the Oxford English Dictionary about drawing room. Yeah, so Jesse, where does that come from? Drawing room is actually short for withdrawing room, which referred originally to a private room that you could withdraw to after you were tired of your company or just needed to get away for a second. 
sometime later, a drawing room became what it is now, or what it sometimes is if you happen to live in um, Downton Abbey, that is, you know, a large room for formally receiving company. Uh, And traditionally, the drawing room is where the ladies would go after dinner. So the men would go to the smoking room and the ladies would go to the drawing room. But, uh, But the fact that one might draw in them is complete coincidence. It is. It has nothing to do with drawing uh, in the sense of producing artwork. Well, this makes me think, like, uh, you know, dining room, it's clear where that comes from. You dine in the dining room. But then there are words I don't really uh, know. The, like, how did den end up being a word we use in our house? Uh, uh, den originally was an Old English word uh, that refers to the lair of, of wild animals. That, you know, that's the original sense. Uh, by the 14th, 13th century, it was being used to mean, you know, a place of retreat, you know, in a figurative way. Uh, and the sense that we're probably most familiar with now, uh, a place where a man can go to be alone, uh, you know, specifically a man, you know, like you know, his den, a space set up for him, uh, was in the late 18th century. Man cave, the most modern synonym oh. for this, dates from the early 1990s. Really? Wait, <laughs> where, so where did that come from? Who, who's, whose fault is that? Don't know, but it's the same same concept. You know, etymologically, man cave, despite being chiefly humorous, is the same concept as den. So den means man cave. Pretty much. <laughs> this is great. Thanks, Jesse. Okay, sure. Thanks. All right, take care. Bye. All right, let's uh, resume our Chris Ware interview already in progress. Hushed tones, Ian. You can take an entire lifetime learning how to draw, like the Japanese artist Hokusai said that when he was in his 90s, that he uh, he felt like he was finally starting to get it, and he might actually become a good artist someday. So um, I think one of his tricks is that he stopped drawing people's faces. He started drawing people from behind, and he found that that allowed the, the viewer and the artist to empathize more with the figures and the imagery. That you provide too much information sometimes, um, you can uh, you can off-put the, the viewer and the reader, so... Thanks so much. Certainly. Thank you very much for considering me or deeming me worthy. I hope I don't impair the reputation of your of your program. We're still collecting your Toilets of the Week. Why, God? Why? Uh, send your nominations to howto at npr.org. Joining us now is Allison. She nominated a public restroom at Walden Pond in Concord, Massachusetts. Hey, Allison. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Real good. You sound uh, you sound up and at him today. Uh, yeah, that's how I usually sound. Okay, that's good. That's yeah. the, that's the kind of toilet person we're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. You... <laughs> We've already called you a toilet person. <laughs> so. All right. Well, tell us about your toilet. Sure. So it's at Walden Pond, um, which is the Walden Pond in Concord, Mass. That Thoreau wrote about. Oh wow. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, a composting toilet. So it uses, and this is not. Um, like the only one, there's definitely composting toilets other places, but I thought it was especially um, apropos at Walden Pond. Sure. So how often, I don't want to ask you how often you use the Walden Pond toilet, but how <laughs> how often are you, are you out there? Uh, I try to go every day. I usually wind up going more like four or five times a week. Oh, so you're a regular visitor. Yeah, yeah. I walk around the pond as as my exercise slash nature time. Now, did Thoreau ever talk about... Uh, going to the bathroom? <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think he did. Uh, I don't recall anything. Um, I took my son, to, who's three, to Walden Pond for like an interpreter's presentation where there was an actor, historian playing Thoreau. Yeah. And uh, my son's first question to him was, uh, you know, where's your bathroom? 
Because if you go to the replica hut, of course, there's no, it would have been an outhouse. So, um, so Thoreau uh, was loath to speak of such things. But uh, yeah. yeah, he did presumably have an outhouse. Yeah, and then there's always the pond. There, there is the pond. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably, and he ate a lot of beans, so presumably he had. <laughs> no, he you know, didn't. Need to use them. Did he really? Yeah, he was mainly he was vegetarian, and he grew his beans, and that's mainly what he ate. He writes about that in Walden. Now, have you read Walden? Because I never, I was supposed to, I never got through it. But did you actually <laughs> read it? Yeah, I did. I did read it. I'm, I'm sort of slowly working my way through it again now that I'm doing this walking thing. Uh-huh. Um, but I grew up in Concord, so um, you can't really escape it. So, having read it, does that enhance your experience using the the outhouse? <laughs> using the using the public house. Um, aside from, I guess, appreciating the the poetry of the like lack of waste and ostentation that Thoreau would have really liked. Yeah. Think of the people that have uh, gone before you. I try not to think of that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Allison, congratulations. You have our Toilet of the Week. Oh, yay! And now you're going to play the music, right? Yeah, This is our 99th episode of our podcast. Oh, my gosh. 99 episodes without LeVar Burton. And one more episode will be 100. Episodes without LeVar Burton. We're going to celebrate. We're having a meetup here in Chicago. Uh, You should come. Otherwise, it'll be weird. Right. It's going to be at the Boiler Room. It starts at 4 o'clock on Saturday, March 30th. 100 episodes. Yeah, March 30th at the Boiler Room in Chicago, 4 p.m. Mike will be there. I will be there. Blythe will be there. Who knows who else is going to be there? LeVar Burton it will probably not be there. He can just use the transporter. If history, if past is prologue. He can, maybe Cole Meany will beam him over there. Anyway, come. It'll be fun. It, we, we'll stop talking about it. March 30th, Boiler Room, 4 p.m. <laughs> I, we'll stop talking about it soon. A century of how-to. Here's a question nobody's ever asked. How do you make the perfect Chicken McNugget? Kim Bazin is a reporter for Business Insider, and he recently went to McDonald's headquarters here in Illinois. So, Kim, what did you see there? So, when I was there, I sat in on this testing session. So, they quality quality test all these nuggets, and what they do is bring in suppliers, like Tyson Chicken, for example, was there, and they have all these folks in this room and they bring out just buckets of nuggets, and they test each one, each set, and each set is different, and they give them grades until it comes out. Is it like a wine tasting, where do they they take a bite and then spit out the nugget into like a, a spit bucket? Yeah, so there is a little, uh, it's a McDonald's cup instead of a spit bucket, <laughs> but it is, they do have that, and they have crackers to cleanse the palate in between nuggets, and... They, I mean, you're supposed to spit them out mostly. Some people will end up, like, when I was there, I ended up eating a couple of them just because there's nuggets there and they're good. But um, the professionals were spitting out most of them. And do they, do they like, kind of sniff and then, like, let the, uh, what, okay. what, yeah, yeah, do you, like, is it, is it like a wine tasting? Are you going for all the, the whole experience of the McNugget? Oh, yeah, it's everything. I mean, they, they, they look at it for a while just to make sure that there's no scuffs on the nugget, too much breading on one side. 
Um, the color itself, it has to be a certain shade of brown to be absolutely perfect. And yeah, um, the smell is part of it too. They, they have buckets of nuggets there, and I imagine you could kind of lose perspective on what's a perfect... So do they have like a control nugget that they're comparing it to? Uh, they do. So at the beginning, they bring, bring out the control nuggets, and these are the perfect nuggets. And <laughs> I, these, these, these are chicken pros, for lack of a better word. They know absolutely everything about, about what these nuggets are supposed to be. And they're at different tables, so they, they call out their grades at the end. The, the McDonald's sensory team is sitting there, and then they call out, you know, they, they ask one person what they're going to grade these nuggets. They say six. Everyone says, yes, six. Is trying, you, you know, you're trying to get to a five. But seven, and everyone else says seven. Six, and then everyone says six, except for one guy that says five. But they're always really close, and it's shocking how much, they, how much their palate is how knowledgeable they are about these about this chicken. You talked about the shape of the McNugget. So wh- when they're evaluating the shape, what are what are they looking for? So there's four general shapes of McNuggets. Now, I'm not really sure how this all began. I think it's just the way they made it a long, long time ago and stuck with it. But the four shapes are the ball, the bell, the bone, and the boot. Now, the boot's the obvious one. It's the one with the little... It looks like a boot. The ball is the most round one. The bell is more like an oval, and the bone is a rectangle. And these are like McDonald's official categories. Like they they are evaluating bell, bone, uh, boot, and uh, ball. Right. Yeah. So the thing that surprises me most about this, and I guess I'm naive, but I just assumed that the nuggets that I got, that was how the shape they were in in the wild before they were cooked. But what you're saying is that these were all designed based on these four different shapes. Yes, exactly. Um, They're all formed into these shapes through, I think, this uh, cookie cutter, essentially, press thing. So you've now that you know all this, what's your favorite shape of McNugget? It's always been the boot, so it's gonna it's gonna stay the boot. All right. Well, Kim, thank you so much. Of course. You know what we ought to do? But we, I think, uh, we should bring in an expert panel to analyze. The chicken McNugget shapes. The perfect target audience. Second graders. I'm Axel. I'm Oscar. And I'm Ellery. Do you like chicken McNuggets? Yeah. We can eat them? Uh, eventually, yes. Yes. But what we need you to do before we eat them is we're going to show them to you, and we want you to use your imagination and say what uh, shape they look like, what they look like. Like, you know how sometimes you look at clouds and say, oh, that one looks like a bunny? We're going to do the same thing, but yeah. with McNuggets. You, you've done that before? Um, no, but I think I get what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Mike, you ready? Okay. You guys, here we go. I'm going to open these up. We've got about nine different McNuggets. I'm going to lay them out here. We've Hold given them here. the first chicken McNugget. The correct shape here is boot. The first shape. Ellery, you want to say what you um, If you flip it like this or this, um, it looks like a boot, a cowboy boot. Yeah, it does, kind of. A very fat one. Uh, it looks like a uh, number... Uh, nine if you take a bite out of it that way. <laughs> if you bit a hole in it, it would look like a nine. Very interesting. So we have... Okay, uh, we're on now to the second McNugget. The next shape is ball. Again, the next shape, ball. Just, just kind of take it all in. A plain donut. I think it looks like a ball or a circle. Uh, all right, we're going to try, uh, try this. Okay, next. we're moving on to nugget number three, Bone. This nugget is bone. Um, a rectangle. A very fat line. A rectangle. 
A brick. It's thick on the side, so it's kind of like a brick. All right. We're down to our final McNugget. This McNugget, Bell. Bell. It sort of looks like an Easter egg if you hold it up. An Easter egg. Easter egg. Do you guys have a favorite shape? I think the bone. I like it because, um, like, it's bigger than some of the rest. More chicken. More taste. The plain donut because it's a donut. So you get the best of both worlds, donut and chicken. Uh-huh. I like um, the boot because it's kind of funny, and it and um, if there's two and you put them side to side, it looks like, and you make like a paper cowboy without boots, um, it'll look like the cowboy is wearing chicken nugget boots. It's like in the Old West. Yep. <laughs> that does it for this week's show. What we learned today, Mike? I learned that there are certain things that I love that are sugary and sweet, but that doesn't mean that they can all go together in one drink. Yeah, some things are best on their own. Like syrup. It's great on pancakes. It's terrible in Coke. Yeah. It's terrible in frosting. It's terrible in honey. It's terrible in lemonade. It's not even that good on pancakes. What do you, th- do you, think, what do you think Mrs. Butterworth would say if she knew we were mixing her with all these other things? Well, I, I'm imagining her just kind of shaking her head at us. You know, she has her arms crossed there. and just sh- But then her head breaks off because she's made of glass. Because she gets so angry. It's a tragic image. Poor lady. You know, she was actually a PhD. Is that right? She was uh, Dr. Butterworth. What'd you learn, Ian? I, I learned that a lot more goes into making chicken McNuggets than you would think. I just imagine now, knowing that there are these four shapes, that there are prob- there's probably just uh, a little circle with the four shapes punched into it that they squeeze the McNuggets out through, like yeah. a Play-Doh, f- uh, Play-Doh fun factory. Yeah, except it's a fact. It's not fun. I mean, they're, it's, it's a sad. It's work dough. How to do everything is produced by Blythe Hega with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is an actual person who's in the building with us. It's Marie Hernandez. Good job, Marie. Keep it up, Marie. Whatever it is you do, whatever it is. Get us your questions at howto at npr.org. And visit our website, howtodoeverything.org. We'll post the recipe for the Bloomberg, plus info about our upcoming meetup. I'm Ian. I'm Mike. Thanks. Testing, 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 testing. Testing, testing. 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 Testing, testing, testing. 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 Mike's a moron. <laughs> <laughs>